let's take our Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. And as I mentioned, what I want to do this morning is spend a few minutes applying Christmas into our lives. And uh, with the thought that because Christmas is Christmas time and the Christmas season can be so busy for many. Some of you maybe not due to the season of life you're in or what have you, but for some it's very busy. We had our uh, daughter, son-in-law, grandson in all this week and we had activities planned, we had things going on, we're preparing even before that, Christmas shopping and other things. And it just becomes a whirlwind of a time. And uh, of course we get a couple Christmas messages and we get Christmas Eve and we talk about the doctrine of the incarnation. We talk about the fact that the Son of God became man. And we celebrate it and we rejoice in it as we should. But we really need to spend some time pondering that and applying it in our lives. And sometimes the Christmas season is so busy and such that when it's over, we're just kind of like, glad that's over, let's get on with it. Or maybe we get so tired of the Christmas music and, and stuff that we're ready to just forget about it. But if we think about it, friends, our, our really our, the essence of the gospel that we believe is that God sent his son and that he was born and became a man and lived and died for us. That's really the, the core of our, the gospel message. And so we are to be living really Christmas lives the whole year. It isn't something we just think about or celebrate for a few weeks every December. This is really for our entire year. And so my desire is to apply that into uh, our lives and to just think through this a little bit this morning before we pass by the season so quickly. Let's read Philippians 2. I'm going to read the first 11 verses of this chapter where the Apostle Paul said this. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's just pause now and pray and ask God to help us. 
Father, it is our heart's desire this morning to apply Christmas and the truths of scripture, uh, Christmas and the teaching of Christmas into our lives. We need your Spirit's help with this and his guidance and his enlightenment. And Father, I don't have the ability to apply this personally for everyone in here. But you do, and so we pray that you will. We prayed a number of weeks ago that we would become people who learn to really rejoice in the Christmas season and utilize it uh, to focus on Christ and to proclaim Him to others. And I just pray that that would continue even this morning uh, and that you would help us in this. In the name of Jesus, I ask these things. Amen. We live in a very busy, chaotic, and noisy world. I think we could all amen that. It's a busy, chaotic, and noisy world. So it is imperative for us then to take the time to meditate on Scripture and its truths and the theology we derive from Scripture. I mean really meditate on it. That's a biblical word, by the way. The idea is just taking truths of Scripture or passages of Scripture and thinking over them over and over again, not letting them go, uh, uh, letting them uh, rumble around in our minds until we grasp its truth and then live it out in our lives. The noisier our world is, the more important this becomes. I don't know if you've ever just tried to sit and think about Scripture or a particular doctrine from Scripture and how, how hard that becomes at times because your mind wanders into every other venue and avenue that you can think of. This is why ultimately the idea of meditation, I think in the Old Testament, the Hebrew, <clears throat> was the idea of murmuring to yourself, mumbling would be a better word. Uh, mumbling something, almost saying it to yourself out loud, which would be a good practice to do because that helps you drown out the voices in your head and uh, the other things that you're thinking about. But we need to take the time to do that and that applies with this, the doctrine of Christmas, really the theology of Christmas, God becoming man for us and to let that truth saturate into our souls so that the Spirit has time to take it and then apply it into our lives so that we can apply it into our lives. And this is the truth with all of the Bible. We are to be doing this. That God gives us His Word not just to know, but so that we take it and we then live it out, you see. It's to be changing the way in which we live. James tells us of this, really warns us, in James chapter 1, Verses 22 to 25, he says, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away at once, forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer acts, he will be blessed in his doing. 
course, James warns us of this because there is a real danger in just being hearers of the word. But we can just listen to verses be read and we can think about theology and we could go to school and get theology degrees and know things very well, but it's not affecting the way we live and that's problematic. I really am ashamed to, I couldn't even count the number of times where I've been in my life during a week living in a moment and I've done something or said something I shouldn't have, responded in a way I shouldn't have. And I thought to myself, I just preached about this. I just stood up before people and told them what God's word said to this moment in this situation. Thankful for Jesus, who never had to confess that. But we can be forgetters of the word. We could be hearers and not doers. And the word and the truths about it and the incarnation itself and the message of Christmas and the good news about it and who Christ was and what he did, that is meant to be lived out in our lives. All of our theology must change us from the heart and then from the heart then we begin living it out. I want us to apply the doctrine of the incarnation which if you really think about it, is real, it's one of the most, if not the most important doctrine in the Bible. If you think about even the structure of your Bible, the entire Old Testament was preparing people for the incarnation, wasn't it? It's the entire thing is preparing people for the incarnation, for the, the coming of the Son of God in the flesh. That's what it's all pointing towards. And the New Testament is applying it. It's explaining what it means and then applying it into our lives. The spotlight of the Scriptures is on this time of year that we celebrate right now, this Christmas season and the incarnation of the Son of God. And if we truly believe, I want you to think about this, everything that we've been singing about Jesus in Christmas reading in the scriptures, the sermons we've heard, if we really believed that, that the Son of God became human for us and lived and died for us, if we really believed that, it would affect the way we live. You know, an interesting truism is this, that true faith or true belief really affects a person's life. If you really believe something, you would respond to it. If I told you right now that at 4 p.m. today you were going to die and you knew I was right because I've made that prediction for somebody before and it turned out, you tell, if you really had faith in what I just said, you believed this was true, would that not affect what you did for the next handful of hours? And the Bible tells us that the Son of God became a man for us and lived and died for us. Now, if we really believed that, it would work its way into our lives. Do you see what I'm trying to say? It would have an impact. It would bring change to the way we think or live. The way we orient our lives, 
the way we respond to others, the things that we do, our priorities. Have you experienced that in your own life? You've come to true faith in Jesus and it changed everything. Your life looked one way and then by God's grace you were brought to really believe in who Jesus was and what he did and that changed everything for you. That's true faith. Faith, true faith, true belief in something like the incarnation affects the way we live or it would. Man, if the, do- if the doctrines of Christmas don't have any implication in your life, any application in your life, don't, don't change your life at all, then can we say you really believe it? Is that real faith? Is that what the Bible talks about when it's talking about faith in Jesus? A faith that doesn't change anything about you? That's not genuine faith. James even said, a faith like that, a faith without resulting works, man, that's a dead faith. If we really believe the doctrine of Christmas, it will change our lives. When a person comes to true saving faith, it's like they just say, wow, this changes everything now. Everything changes because of this. My life gets a new reorientation, new priorities, directives because I truly believe this so the question before us this morning I'm posing to you and I won't be able to answer this question in its entirety but I'm going to lay it before you to ponder what would a life look like coming from a person who really believed the son of God was sent into this world for them and lived and died for them what does that kind of life look like First thing I want to point out is this, and I'm going to make mention of a couple passages from John just in answering that question, or at least helping us in the right direction. As Christ was sent into the world, so too are we sent into the world. Do you remember the main passage of the Christmas message uh, from John's Gospel, John 3, 16, 17. Most of you probably have this memorized, but I think I made a slide for it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Right? That is a Christmas message right there. You've got the Father loving the world in this way that He gives the Son, the Son that was prophesied in Isaiah and many other places in the Old Testament. The Son of God provided for the people of the world so that the people of the world could believe in Him and not perish eternally but have eternal life. Sent the world, Son, not into the world to condemn it, but so that the world might be saved through Him. Now listen to what Jesus says from John 17. You could actually, if you wanted to turn there, you could. Otherwise, there's a slide here. We just read this earlier. 
John 17, verse 16. Remember now, Jesus is praying here for his disciples. And he said, They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Now how does Jesus want us to view, how does Jesus want his disciples to view their lives in this world? As sent ones. Do you know how God could have designed things? He could have done it like this. Whole world's a mess of sinful humanity. God saves certain people out of it. And as soon as they're saved, they're transported out of the world into heaven. He could have done it that way, right? Because he's, well, he's God. And God can do whatever God wants to do. He could have done it that way. But he didn't do it that way. He saves people and changes their hearts and empowers them with his spirit and then he leaves them in the world. He leaves them here. And what Jesus is saying here, I believe beginning with the apostles and then moving into the church, is that we are to see ourselves as those sent from him into the world in the same way the Father sent him into the world. You know, Jesus was really the first Christian missionary. The Son of God was sent into the world and the Son of God comes into the world on mission. And we looked at this, we talked about it for a few minutes on uh, Christmas Eve night. He comes into the world to be the Savior of his people. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the mission. So his whole life orientation, the way he thought about life was as this sent one. This one that had work to do. As a matter of fact, we read this earlier in John chapter 17. In verses 1 through 5, he says, Uh, It says, when he had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes, he prayed, he says, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence, with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. In other words, it seems to me that the way Jesus viewed his life was as sent on mission from the Father in this world on a, at least in this world, a temporary assignment in his time in this world. The incarnation was a permanent assignment. He's still man for us. But in this world was temporary on his way to glory. This was the way he thought. This was the way he endured suffering, even the suffering of the cross. It was for the glory that was set before him, for the good of his people, for the glory of his Father, accomplishing the work that he had been entrusted with all the way to the end. 
I would argue that that is the way we should view our lives. We should view our lives as in this world as a temporary assignment by God with work for us to do for His glory and the good of His people until we ourselves are glorified and reach glory. That means if you are here, it is not purposeless or meaningless. If God, if you are a believer and God has not taken you out of this world yet, you're still supposed to be here. And He has prepared for you good works that you are to walk in. Or as Titus chapter 2, we read earlier, tells us, a people zealous for good works. You are to be going about, as Jesus did, doing good for the glory of God and the good of His people. We are to be a people on mission. A people that view their lives as sent from Jesus into this world as the people of Jesus to bring the good news to the world, to love those He's placed in our lives, to fulfill our God-given responsibilities, to do the tasks and the the daily tasks and chores and things that we have before us for His glory, viewing them as from God. You see how Christmas is to reorient our way of thinking. We are to think like Jesus. And we are to be living as Jesus. I think though that we can go awry in this because we get drawn into the world and become of the world. We lose focus of that temporary nature of the world and our mission in the world as the light of the world and the body of Christ here. We lose focus on that and we're drawn into the world. We might even use this word. We become lovers of the world. Focused on earthly things. This becomes our focus. It happens to all of us. So I'm not preaching at you. I'm preaching with you. And to us as a people, we are a people who allow the world sometimes and its thinking and philosophies and lifestyles and entertainments, its treasures to dominate our lives and then we lose focus of the mission. We become like Demas. Anybody know who Demas is in the Bible? He's mentioned three times. Now two of the times are in a positive light. I don't know if you knew this or not. Two times this man, Demas, is mentioned. It's positive from the Apostle Paul. As a matter of fact, Philemon, uh, well, it's only one chapter there, but verses 23 and 24, Paul is concluding his letter, and he says, Epiphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings to you, as so do Mark, uh, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. Well, here was a man who was working alongside the Apostle Paul. And then in Colossians chapter 4, verse 14, he says the same, some, something similar. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. Here they are with Paul there in this occasion. But then something happened, and we learn about that at the end of Paul's life, where Paul is imprisoned again in Rome and awaiting his imminent death and execution. And he says this in chapter 4, verse 10, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. 
Now, can you see how the Spirit put that there to warn us of what happens when we lose track of our Christ-like mission of being in the world and to a degree for the world and its salvation and to be the light of the world but to not become the world or to fall in love with the world. Now, no, when he's talking about loving the world, he's not talking about necessarily people. We're to love people. But the philosophies of the world and the way of life of the world and the treasures that the world offers us, they're so attractive that we can be drawn to them and they begin to dominate our way of thinking. And we lose focus on the mission. So God is gracious to warn us of these things. John says in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever, you see. Like Jesus, who his whole life did the will of God, loved the people of the world, but didn't become conformed to the image of the world. Didn't have that love of the world, and so too we live in that way. So we must live our lives as those sent from Jesus, just as he was sent from the Father, on a very temporary assignment in this world, on our way to eternal glory. And as Jesus, in John 17, sanctified himself and set up, uh, himself apart for the world, so we too need to set ourselves apart for the eternal good of the world so that we can be as Jesus was. Okay? So that's the first way of just getting us thinking about how we can apply Christmas into the next part of this year and the year to come. Now I want you to turn to Philippians chapter 2. You're probably already there. And I want to make a few comments about what is one of my favorite Christmas passages, which is what we read just a few minutes ago. Let's read it again, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Or perhaps the translation, and some of the other translations say, which was also in Christ Jesus, which seems to make more sense to me, honestly. Have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now I want you to notice first how Paul is talking here about the incarnation, right? We can all see that here. The Son of God takes on flesh, becomes a human being. But also notice this, he's applying it. That's how he started this. Have this mind among yourselves. Have this same way of thinking. The same way of thinking of the Son of God you have in yourself. You see how he's applying it? 
So he's not just going to talk about the incarnation generally. He's not going to just talk about Christmas generally. He's going to apply it now. He's going to show us how this works out and how it must flesh itself out in our lives. We are to have the mind of Christ. We are to think like Christ. So just as we saw ourselves thinking like Christ in John 17, okay, I'm sent one. I'm on a temporary mission on my way to glory for the glory of God and the good of His people in the Great Commission. That's how he viewed his life. I've got work to accomplish on my way there. I'm setting myself apart from the world and the things of the world and I'm, I'm walking towards eternity. This is the way he viewed it. We are to think that way too. And in here, the primary issue is this. I want you to have that humble mind of Christ. I want you to think with humility. That's the idea. Now, it's important to understand that Paul is addressing this to a church as a whole. This isn't a letter to to an individual. Now, individuals are to take it and apply it, but I want to say this first, that this letter to the Philippians and what Paul is writing is, is essentially saying this, you are to have the humble mind of Christ as a people so that as people become familiar with your church, they are seeing the humble mind of Christ in you worked out among one another. As a church, the church is to be known. Is to be known for its Christ-like humility. Don't chuckle when I say that, right? Is the church usually known in the world for its Christ-like humility? I just got done listening to a, a podcast from Christianity Today. It's called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Anybody listen to that? It's one of the most well-known, except in our congregation apparently, one of the most well-known podcasts in the United States. They really struck a chord with this and it was about... Uh, the church Mars Hill that was a Seattle-based church uh, that was pastored by Mark Driscoll. Does everybody know the name Mark Driscoll? And the disaster that came from that. And as you listen to the stories, and it's probably, I don't know, eight episodes or so, and they're really intriguing, and um, just with what I do and things and the circles I run in, I was very familiar with Mark Driscoll and his ministries and watched it kind of collapse and such. But it's that idea that that church, and especially its leadership and, and Mark Driscoll himself, was known for anything but the humble mind of Christ. There was just nothing but pride and control and everything that isn't Christ within that congregation. And it ended in disaster. But if we really believe who Christ is and our hearts have really been changed by Christ and if we really have the mind of Christ, shouldn't the church, not just ours, but I'm saying Christian people in general, be known for our humility, our thinking as Christ did, 
I mean, just work your way down this passage. It's really fascinating. How was Christ humble? What kind of man was Christ and what kind of men and women are we to be? Well, first in verse 6, he was in the form of God and did not account quality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Now I want you to understand something. When he says that Christ was in the form of God, what he means is that he was, as he existed, just as Jesus said earlier in John 17, he has always existed in eternity past with the Father and the Spirit as equal with God in his essence and being. He was truly God living in glory. And did you catch what Jesus said? You know, uh, return me to the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Glory. And yet he comes to earth. Theologians call this his state of humiliation. Think of that word. The state of humiliation of the Son of God. That He, the Creator who is in the form of God, becomes human being for us, becomes a man for us. That's humility. God is a humble God. He emptied Himself is what the text says here. He did not think equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. One translation says, made himself nothing. That that seems to be the complete opposite of what most Americans, maybe some of us included, pursue. We're always trying to work our way up to be something. It's the pursuit of being something, making ourselves something, becoming someone. It's like the worst thing in the world to not be known, not be popular, not be famous for something. And yet here you have the eternal Son of God who empties himself, not of his deity, friends. Understand that. He was truly, fully God. But he comes and he's born a baby in a manger, in a poor family, and lives his entire life up until his public ministry years when by nature of what he was doing, the fame of him was spreading. But understand, he was not seeking that fame. And this is why oftentimes he would perform some miraculous sign and then tell his disciples, don't tell anybody of what I've done. It wasn't for the purpose of being known. Jesus would not have a social media account. He wouldn't take selfies of himself in front of the mirror or have a self-promoting platform. He didn't live like this at all. And Paul says, have that mind in you now, which was also in Christ, you see. The pursuit of being a nobody isn't isn't a well-known pursuit, is it? But it's what Christ did. And I'm always, you know, we have these exciting stories of Christ's life, 
in the scripture, beginning with his early uh, months there with Joseph and Mary and then in his ministry. But do you understand that all those other years were just very ordinary years of Christ's life where he lived very ordinary days and did very ordinary things, just obeying the Father and doing the Father's will in that day, living for God and doing good to other people. But he just, he wasn't in pursuit of making himself something. That's a humble mind. As a matter of fact, when the Son of God becomes a man, empties himself, as verse 7 says, of that glory that is his by right, and he actually took the form of a servant. You see that in verse 7? What kind of form would the Son of God, I mean, if you, could make, if you were making up this story, the Son of God's going to become a man, what kind of form would he take in his life? What would it look like? It would be a pretty glorious life, I would think. Pretty elaborate. But Christ's life was not so. He took the form of a slave. That's the idea of the word. His whole life then was one of service to God and other people. Isn't that what he tried to teach his disciples who were trying to be something in, in Matthew and Mark's gospel? They're trying to be something, want to be somebody in the kingdom. Isn't that what he pulled them aside and taught them? Mark chapter 10, verse 42 to 45. He called them to him and said, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, that is himself, came not to be served but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That is, that is how we are supposed to live. Taking the form of a servant. Verse 8, again we're told he humbles himself. Being found in human form, and understand that as truly human, He humbled himself. And how did he do that? In this passage, verse 8, he humbled himself by doing something specifically. Do you see it there? Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And there's so much I could bring out on this. But I'll just mention this. You see that humility in the fact that the Son of God, though equal with the Father, submitted Himself obediently to the Father's will. In that mind and way of life, that humble obedience to God, went all the way through His life, even to the cross. And we'll see this in just probably two weeks. In Matthew 26, in that Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus agonizingly praying to the Father, if there is any other way, can this cup pass from me? Nevertheless, not my will but thine be done. Friends, that's humility. Coming from the co-equal member of the Trinity, the Son of God, humbly obeying Now friends, if Jesus lived his life in humble obedience to God for God's glory and the good of others all the way through the cross, shouldn't that be our pursuit as well? Shouldn't we see our everyday life 
as that we must be obedient to the Father, submitting ourselves under the authority of the Father in our lives as He's communicated what He wants from us from His Word so clearly, and to, by His grace and by the Spirit of God, live that out in our lives just as Christ Jesus did. That we humble ourselves by becoming obedient. And He did this even through the cross, that shameful, painful death on a cross. And friends, that death was not for himself. That death was for you and me. He died for our sins. That obedience was to the Father for us. And Christ was a servant of God and a servant of his people. Contemplate that humility. He gave us a picture of this. And it's recorded for us in John 13. We won't take the time to look at it because we're probably pretty familiar with it. But before he goes to the cross and he has his disciples in that upper room, he gives that display of a servant, doesn't he? And tells us that he, he gets up from the table and he takes the servant's towel and the basin of water reserved for the servant to go around and wash the feet of the guests. And what does he do? One by one goes through the disciples, including Judas, which is always remarkable to me, including the one he knew would betray him, and he washes their nasty feet. That was the mind of Christ in this whole Christmas narrative, in this whole Christmas story, in the life of Christ, all the way to the end, humbly serving God, humbly serving His people. And Paul says, have that mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Friends, I know that when I preach a sermon like this and I think about these truths, I, I know how woefully far short I fall of this. That mind of Christ. That humility of Christ. But friends, that's why we can be thankful and praise God and we praise Jesus because He never fell short of this. You're forgiven of the failure. You're forgiven of the pride. You're forgiven of the demanding of your way. You're forgiven of the disobedience. But friends, don't let that forgiveness then lead you to apathy about it. We also thank Him that now we have the Spirit to say, yes, I'm supposed to be like Jesus. And you can pray. And I'd say you can pray right to the Spirit. Say, Spirit, glorify Christ in me and and cause me to be like Christ in my life. Transform me, Spirit, into His image, so that when others see me, they see Jesus. I'll leave us with this verse, because I believe God will answer that. 
And I was going to mention in the beginning, but I skipped past it, Amber, so there should be a slide for 2 Corinthians. There it is. And, well, I'll just read it off the screen with you all. He says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. Now, understand what he's saying. When you look into Scripture and you see the glory of the Lord Jesus, as we read the Christmas narratives, can you see the glory of the Lord Jesus? As we read John 17, can you see the glory of the Lord Jesus? As, you, uh, as, as we've looked in, the, in Philippians 2, can you see the glory of the Lord Jesus? Now this is what's happening as we stare at him, as we give it time to saturate in our souls, as we meditate upon the glory of the Lord Jesus, the Spirit himself is transforming us into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. You see how that works? That's what we're praying. We're praying for that transformation, to have the mind of Christ and to live out the Christmas message throughout the year. So this Christmas, friends, let's not leave Christmas behind us. (laughs) Let's not say, I'm glad that's over. Let's move on. Let's take now the truths of Christmas, the foundation of everything we believe. Let's ask God for the ability to live the Christmas message out in our lives all year long. Let's pray. Father, We ask for that now. We'll just pause and pray for it right now. That your spirit would allow us to see, first of all, the glory of Jesus on the pages of Scripture and that then your spirit would empower us and transform us into his image. And of course, we're not going to pray this for our own glory or even necessarily our own good, but for your glory and the good of your people and the Great Commission. We ask this in his precious name. Amen.